Hey there, it's Laura Flynn from Making Contact. Did you know our listeners are the ones responsible for making this show happen every week? We provide the show for free to radio stations because we think it's important to creating dialogue and impacting public discussions and policies. Right now, more than 100 stations in the U.S. carry us. If you like what you hear, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation to support our work. That's radioproject.org. Now for this week's show. We know history, and because we know history, I don't think we're doomed to repeat it. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. And these, these ten cities generally go down in, you know, we know what they're going to complain, complain about. They're going to complain about uh, sanitation, so we have a portalette. We're getting another one. Uh, they're going to complain about unsightliness. If you look around, it doesn't look that bad. Portland, Oregon, January 2001. Only two weeks earlier, four homeless people founded what they were calling Camp Dignity, or Dignity Village. Right now, there's a scattering of tents on a grassy field in Portland's industrial Eastside neighborhood. This was my very first attempt at interviewing people before I became a radio journalist. I was using a cheap tape recorder, so please excuse the subpar audio quality. But while you're listening, keep in mind, Dignity Village still exists today, more than 15 years later. All right, this is Andrew Stelzer. Who am I here with? Yeah, my name is Jack Tafari. Let me introduce myself. I'm a soldier here at the camp. I'm formerly homeless, but now I'm very contented in my nylon tent. I'm an organizer for uh, the Out of the Doorways campaign. It was initiated by homeless people through the Street Roots office in uh, Portland, Oregon. And the camp he's talking about is Camp Dignity. Can you tell us a little bit about where the name came from and where the idea of Camp Dignity was born? We're about dignity. We're about uh, a more dignified way of living. We started out as a little camp over by the train station, and the police ran us away. We found another place, and uh, we moved there, and we had a shopping cart parade because we were being harried and harassed and run. The police, you know, in, in the goodness of their hearts, right, they gave us till the day after Christmas and said that that was our Christmas present. Well, the day after Christmas, the police, in conjunction with ODOT, cruelly chased us out of our second site. What happened is we had a big shopping cart parade. It was 10 shopping carts long, but by now the camp had grown from just a few people to about 15 and it was led and marshaled by our number one soldier who's been in it with us from the beginning, whose name is John Reese. And John has no legs. He lost one leg serving his country. He led the parade in his wheelchair. All right, What's your, your name is John? John Reese. And uh, how did you get involved with the camp? Uh, I got involved with it from the first day they started it. You were one of the original uh, four people living here? Yep. First meeting I went to, I was invited to go and speak. Because I'm a, I'm a Vietnam vet, and I was staying underneath the bridge, Broadway Bridge, before I got involved with Camp Dignity here. They wanted me to come and let them know what it was like being a double amputee and being out on the streets. See, if you don't have a drug or alcohol problem, housing won't, uh, the landlords won't put you up in their places. And if you got a criminal background, they'll discriminate against you for that. I'm tired of having applications left and right be turned down because of a, because of my, my past background. 
John was living under the Broadway Bridge. Four days after he got his other leg amputated in October, he was back under the fucking bridge. I went down there to stay with him because it's safer to sleep together. People piss under there. It was pissy and nasty and smelly. Do you know what I mean? This is a wonderful improvement over what we had before. The problem is that there's not enough accommodation. There's between two and three thousand of us in this small town sleeping out. The situation is dire. The homeless in this town is everywhere else across the country, a wall-to-wall, -wall, basically, you know? The cost of uh, a place to live in is rising beyond the reach of poor people, and uh, we're trying to work out a solution for that, and it's called nylon and it comes in the form of tents right you know we say two three many tent cities Tafare's predictions have come true at least to some extent after some legal battles dignity village was legalized by the city government and now houses more than 50 people full-time they describe themselves as a cross between a transitional housing option and an intentional community and Dignity Village is widely seen as one of the first in a new generation of homeless encampments that are by many measures functional living collectives. This camp was originally set up for people who are victims or who just can't go into a place because they were evicted once in their lifetime. People here have a tendency to look on your past as just the way you are instead of giving people a chance to prove themselves. Everybody makes mistakes. Some people got caught. And you feel like the group is coming together, that people are feeling a lot of support from each other? Oh, yeah, we mainly, we support one another so far as it's a community and it's not one individual, it's not a, a capitalist democracy. <laughs> it's everybody, we have a, a two meetings a week where everybody put their input in and we say, huh, this is good or this is not good, but it's a, a raise of hands, you know, yay or nay. What's the main difference in your life now versus your life before Camp Dignity? What, what difference has it made in your life? And how is, how is your day-to-day -day life different? It's home. I can come. I can come, I can leave my stuff, and it'll be safe. We're organized because we know that like singly, individually, when we're just living under bridges and in doorways and stuff, you know, I mean, it was like the police didn't even obey the law, the 24-hour notice to move law. They'd just kick us in the feet and shine a light in our face and say, get up, you've got five minutes, move out. Well, now they're obeying the law because now we have the police under manners with the publicity generated by the third move, the move to this site. You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Today we are talking about tent cities, and joining me now via Skype is Eric Tars, senior attorney with the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. He helped edit a 2014 report titled Welcome Home, The Rise of Tent Cities in the United States. Eric, welcome to Making Contact. Thanks for having me. So to start off, let's get some numbers about what seems to be a growing trend. Uh, how many tent cities are in the U.S., and is there any estimate of how many people are living in them? Um, well, our report documented uh, media reports of tent cities in 46 states across the country. We believe that's a vast undercount, uh, that they, in fact, probably exist in every state, probably spring into existence and then are swept out of existence without media reports. 
uh, and many tent cities uh, are by design, you know, trying to avoid public notice. Some of these encampments were several hundred people. Some of them were just, you know, a dozen families or a dozen individuals living together. And within these tent cities, are there similarities you found in your report? Are there best practices emerging? Usually where they have organically developed, there is a system of self-governance in place uh, that makes them feel safer for people and more conducive to their needs. Um, you know, they may have a self-enforcing dry or sober policy, or they may say, you know, it's okay if you're here, if you have some substance issues, but, uh, you know, you need to keep yourself managed while you're in the encampment, or we will kick you out collectively. Um, whereas uh, some of the ones that have been developed by cities themselves often have strict substance abuse policies and um, they require governance from above, which makes it more of an us versus them, administration versus the people kind of relationship, whereas when it's self-governing, everybody's accepting responsibility for their own actions um, and for the well-being of their, their fellow encampment mates. So, so I'm wondering, is this new? Is this a trend? Uh, most of us are too old, but we read about Hoovervilles during the Great Depression. Is this just a new twist on that, uh, something that's been done before? And, and if it is new, when did this current iteration of Tent Cities begin? Um, I, mean, I think it's been something that's been constant in some areas since the era of the Great Depression. But um, coming out of the Depression, you know, America kind of made a commitment to the people President Roosevelt talked about a second Bill of Rights, that everybody should have access to a decent home, to a decent job with a, a living wage, and uh, to Social Security, all those things. And public housing came out of that, and, and federal housing subsidies, as well as a lot of uh, commitments at the state and local levels. That uh, provided a safety net for a lot of people up until about 1978. Uh, that was the peak of funding, and since that point, um, we've seen federal funding be cut in about half for affordable housing, while the, the federal budget for uh, high-end housing has actually gone up through the mortgage income interest tax deduction. So the subsidies are still going out from the federal government, but they're going to the people at the highest end of the income spectrum rather than the people who really need it. And so whereas public housing was once housing of last resort for just about anybody who needed it, uh, now only one in four eligible applicants is able to get access to federally funded housing um, or housing subsidies. And that means three out of four eligible people are simply having to make ends meet on their own. Um, and so I think we have come back to the point that uh, we were in towards uh, the middle of the Depression where these Hoovervilles um, are springing up across the country because there simply isn't um, adequate uh, affordable housing being built by private developers, and we also don't have funding supports either from the federal or state or local levels for people who need uh, the affordable housing. One of the communities included in your study is a tent city in St. Petersburg, Florida, called Pinellas Hope. And I actually visited Pinellas Hope back in 2009, and we broadcast a piece on them so we're going to go back to the Making Contact archives and listen to a bit of that and then come back to discuss it. Let's hear some of that story. 
On a dead-end road in a wooded area on the outskirts of St. Petersburg, a lazy Sunday morning is getting underway. Eric Evanowskis is the facilities manager at Pinellas Hope, an experimental homeless village. As we walk past the entrance gate, what appears to be a giant campground unfolds. We are an outdoor facility. We have two large tents in which the clients dine and um, watch TV and have their recreation time. Um, we currently have about 200 Coleman outdoor tents, which the clients sleep in at night. And then we also have to the right here, these uh, outdoor houses, which we'll slowly be transitioning the clients into. Across from the dining tents, there's a row of five wooden structures, nicknamed casitas, or little homes. It would be a major stretch to call them houses, but they provide all the shelter from the elements that a small home would. These currently are unoccupied. Um, are they all locked at the moment? Okay, well, apparently they're all locked, but here you can peek in the window. As you can see inside, they're, they're just uh, secured to the ground with uh, ties, and then they're plywood. They have a uh, shingle roof and four windows for adequate ventilation. The casitas are as simple as it gets. In fact, the entire compound is bare bones. But it feels more like group living than a shelter. And that's what makes Pinellas Hope so popular with clients like Rocco Mariano, who's been on the streets on and off for the past five years. When I leave here, like, or, you know, to go to the store, I feel unsafe outside that gate. But when I, when I come here, I say, home, sweet home. I came here from living under a bridge. I will only be here four weeks this coming Thursday, and already my life has turned around completely. I never thought that seeing dirt and living in a 10-by-10-foot tent would be heaven. After moving into Pinellas Hope, Laura Leziati lined up a job working security for the 2009 Super Bowl in nearby Tampa. Pinellas Hope has its own shuttle bus running 14 hours a day to get residents to and from their jobs and other appointments. It's not like we're in jail, but you all have to be accountable, and that helps me be accountable to me. Drugs and alcohol are forbidden here, and there are several AA meetings every week. Residents can also be drug tested and breathalyzed when they come home. Participation in decisions and in daily life is key to making the residents here feel a sense of both community and responsibility. So this is our kitchen. As you can see, our clients are busily chopping away for lunch. Whenever possible, work is done by the residents. And that's, that's part of the community feeling here. Anytime something needs to be done, more often than not, we have someone here who's specialized in that before they became homeless. They can fix a dryer, or they can service the air conditioning system. They can do that sort of thing. And then here's our laundry room. You can go in first if you'd like. In the laundry room, there are computers for checking email and searching for jobs. Originally funded for just five months, local governments decided Pinellas Hope was too valuable a project to lose. So several cities and the county chipped in to keep it running through October 2009. It costs about $3 million a year, but compared to most other shelters, that's cheap. Because of the basic living conditions, the camp only costs about $24 a day a person. I've had people that tell me that this isn't human, that how can you put people in tents? It's a heck of a lot better than on the street, and it's a heck of a lot better than being hurt or raped, and that's been happening a lot lately. 
a lot. <laughs> if I asked you, you'd stay in that tent, wouldn't you? No. Would you rather go to a house with 17 people in it? Oh, no. I'd rather be in this tent at nighttime. All right, you got it. <laughs> And we're back with Eric Tars with the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. Uh, so, Eric, how have things changed at Pinellas Hope since 2009 uh, when that audio was collected? And how typical is what we just heard in terms of how tent cities operate? You know, I think you can hear that the community can do some good, that when people have you know, at least a, a safe place to leave their belongings and to lay their head at night that they don't need to worry about where they are going. Um, you know, it, it's a relief to them that they um, can take that need, that basic human need, off of their checklist of things that they have to do that day. And then they are able to go out and do other things like look for employment. The, the other thing that's happened in St. Petersburg, unfortunately, is that St. Petersburg continues to criminalize homelessness to say that for people who don't have a place to stay or choose not to follow the rules um, of Pinellas Hope, that it's okay for them to be shipped off to jail or given fines for trying to sleep in other places. And that's another big danger that we see of the creation of these uh, legal tent encampments is if it makes communities feel like, well, we've given people a place to go, even if that place isn't adequate to meet their needs, that it frees us up to be able to, to criminally punish people who choose not to go there. You know, we as an organization don't endorse the growth of legalized tent cities. We don't, we could, because our ultimate belief is that housing, adequate housing is a basic human right to which every American should be entitled. And so... Uh, acknowledging the creation of legal uh, tent cities is an abdication of our duty uh, towards our fellow Americans to make sure that they have the housing that they need because tents aren't adequate housing. Um, but that said, uh, where they do exist, we don't believe that they should be evicted unless adequate housing options are provided. The biggest success that we've seen in actually ending homelessness um, has been through the housing first approach, um, which says that people should be just given housing to take, again, that take that basic need off their checklist of things they need to do every day and then allow them to be able to organize their lives. In many of our communities, what we've seen is just a complete skewing of the housing market. So in uh, Los Angeles, for example, last year, 90% of the housing that was constructed was affordable to only 10% of the population. That means the other 90% of the population is competing for only 10% of the housing stock that's being produced. We need to radically shift our priorities, whether it's through uh, development incentives or market subsidies or some other means so that our communities are actually developing the housing that is affordable to the people who live in it. Otherwise, we're gonna to continue to see the growth of these tent cities. I would much rather address the problem of homelessness before it starts than have to be dealing with it um, once people are actually homeless. 
Eric Tars is with the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. We will link to their report titled Welcome Home, the Rise of Tent Cities in the United States on our website, radioproject.org. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me on and uh, happy to do it again. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcast. Go to radioproject.org, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Seattle is one of the only cities in the nation to have passed an ordinance formally sanctioning tent cities. In the fall of 2015, three new encampments were built on city land with city permits and city dollars. A lot of that success can be chalked up to Nicholsville, one of Seattle's formal tent encampments, which has been around since 2008. Reporter Sarah Bernard visited Nicholsville and brings us this report. You know, I guess I had a degree of self-loathing when I became homeless, like, oh my God, I'm homeless now. As if I'm saying, oh my God, I'm not a human. You know? And you're feeling that way. Will is a combat veteran living in Seattle. He says he has PTSD and a mild form of TBI, or traumatic brain injury. It makes it difficult for him to keep a job, or a home. We have tents of different sizes, and it, it depends on what exactly is donated. And sometimes people bring their own tents. Here, take a look at this. I met Will at the Nicholsville Security Office one afternoon this spring. Nicholsville is one of Seattle's self-governed tent encampments. Anyone can stay here, but there are rules. No drugs, no drinking, no weapons, no fights. And anyone causing trouble can be kicked out. The front gate is guarded by a tiny cabin painted bright pink with a large yellow sign. Security Office, please sign in. And yes, it does get cold and wet at night, so we need to have a fire to keep the poor person (laughs) warm enough to do their security shift. We walk through the camp, which is built on a grassy slope near a freeway overpass. It has tents and tarp structures on raised platforms and tiny wooden cabins built by volunteers from the Home Depot Foundation. There's no electricity, no showers, just porta-potties and sometimes bottled water. There are half-finished projects all over the place. But we are going to have a community garden over there. It's not going to be just for Nickelodeons, which is the name for Nicholsville residents, but for anyone in the community also. And you can grow whatever you want, vegetables, flowers. Nicholsville was built in 2008 as a form of protest against former Seattle Mayor Greg Nichols. His administration routinely broke up homeless encampments, including Nicholsville, at first. But the camp managed to stay intact. Since its creation, Nicholsville has relocated about 20 times, finding scraps of underutilized land, seeking sponsorship through faith organizations, and housing anywhere from 40 to 150 people. Everyone's self-sufficient here, so these guys don't even need to do the work. They're not required to. They just do it. So we have wood that's available, so at night we can have a warm fire, or during the day, someone could cook up a little something if they want. We're just going to set it on the fire until it starts to sizzle down, and I'll fry it up once it sizzles down on the natural oils. 
Well, it's easy. It's gonna be good. He's a good cook. He <laughs> made it sound like nothing. I can't cook to save my life. People just go and get something, bring it up. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can put together. That's one of the great things about Nicholsville itself is that we do tend to be that way. We do tend to be more cooperative because it's actually even more communal, you know? And Will says he thinks a tent city's presence actually helps the local neighborhood. Despite the degree of opposition we might have had to begin with, we've always won over the neighbors to the point, I mean, on the most basic level sitting up top watching so no one comes in camp who isn't supposed to. And, and maybe doing a little outside patrol to make sure nothing's wrong with the fence, people aren't trying to get in. The effect of doing that pretty much stops or greatly reduces break-ins into cars, into homes, all sorts of crimes just drop down. It's proven to work. The guys, the people that started this tent city thing, of all of them, I think, uh, They've done the most good compared to the indoor shelters and whatnot. John Derrick has been homeless for three and a half years. He says he doesn't do shelters. Too cramped, too many complications. I've lived out in illegal camping for a little over a year and a half I did that. I've known about Nicholsville for a long time, but I came here because I was injured and I was assaulted and injured. So I came here for the safety. But at least here you have a place to put your belongings. You don't have to carry a bag with you every day. You can go out and get work. You can do all kinds of stuff without being burdened with the stigma of homeless. Still, Derek says. It's not a home, but it's a temporary place. And that's the sticking point for a lot of homeless advocates. Many argue that a tent city isn't real housing, that it's not permanent and shouldn't be considered permanent. And the danger of sanctioning tent cities, as Seattle has, is that it might lead government officials to think they'd really done something to solve homelessness. I think just about everybody is saying, you know, how can we in America have tent cities of homeless people? You know, is it an eyesore? Is it a blight? Sharon Lee is executive director of Seattle's Low Income Housing Institute, an organization that has sponsored Nicholsville in the past and continues to work with and advocate for the encampment. She says that if anything, encampments like Nicholsville should just be a way to help advocates connect the homeless to permanent housing. We're really happy that City Council passed the um, tent encampment ordinance. We found out in terms of an organized tent city that we were able to um, have our case managers work with many of the um, homeless families and couples and individuals, and we were able to quickly move them into housing. We've seen some great success of people moving from tent city into housing and then getting their lives together. But even a few tent cities barely make a dent in the thousands of homeless here. The Seattle metropolitan area has the fourth largest homeless population in the country. And the number of unsheltered homeless in Seattle, people living on the street, shot up more than 20 percent between 2014 and 2015. The total amount in the tent cities total would still be under 1,000 people when there's over 3,500 documented homeless in Seattle. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what the issue is. Nicholsville resident Asa Yoey also tells me that three new encampments is just not enough. We need more. We need, I mean, there's, what, 3,000 plus homeless, and that would only make room for like 300, you know. So, I mean, that's, you know, a drop in the bucket for help, but it's something. Nicholsville might not be a solution to homelessness, but for the people who live here, people who might otherwise be sleeping on concrete or facing violence, it's still a safe and supportive place to stay for a while. Family. We're all one big family. Yeah. Feeling like family. 
Chris and Erica Semrau say that Nicholsville is the only place they've found where they can be together and feel safe. Shelters don't offer much for married couples, and neither does the street. I feel like I'm at home, more at home than the whole time I've lived here in Seattle. It's really safe here. Like, sometimes I don't always feel safe. There's honor here. There's honor and there's respect. And if there's not honor and there's not respect, they get booted and they're gone. Outsiders, when they just drive by, they see tents, 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 and tents, and they don't realize the difference. I mean, we have families here. Like, we're not these monsters. There's numerous reasons why people are homeless, and this is something good. A little something special right here. I returned to Nicholsville several times. The last time, Will was gone. I don't know why. No one would tell me. I can only speculate. In a way, he said it himself. Need is an ocean, and we just have a dropper full to deal with that. That's all we can do. And, and that's the shame of it. But a supportive community can be that dropper full, at least for a little while. How much looks on the outside? How much looks like on the inside? <laughs> for Making Contact, I'm Sarah Bernard in Seattle. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To get our podcast, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Hold back your thoughts. Silence rhythms are tough.